Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I interview Sam Baker from Mobility Fund. We've had Sam on before on episode 50 when he was still at Wonder Mobility, but since then he's headed off and is doing his own fund specifically focused on mobility B2B businesses. I have really enjoyed getting to re-know Sam in the last little while and he's been a great advocate in this space. It was awesome to reconnect it. MM America and to get into more depth about the opportunities that exist in micromobility around the edges and in niches that otherwise aren't always covered. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. And here is Sam. Let's go. Welcome back to Micromobility. I am very excited to have with us today Sam Baker from Mobility Fund. How are you going today, Sam? Very good. Thanks for having me on. Oh, uh, pleasure. And actually, this isn't the first time. This is the second. The first time was with Wonder. And, you know, you've subsequently gone on to do Mobility Fund. And we had a chance to reconnect and and that and that journey. And you came to Micromobility America. And I, I just, we had such a good chat. I, I thought it would be wonderful for the audience to be able to share that with us. So, look, can you tell us a little bit about what happened since the last time? I mean, take us through Wonder and the, the formation there and what happened uh, and then and then what led to you going to do Mobility Fund. Absolutely. So my history in mobility starts uh, really as a co-founder of a company called Wonder Mobility, which has become one of the leading software as a service providers for vehicle sharing operators. And that was the uh, last time that we connected here on the podcast when I was still in that operating role. And look, like many folks in the last couple of years, um, my life has changed in many different ways. And one of those things was um, having a young family, two children for the first time, being originally from the US and then co-founding a company that's European based in Germany and uh, feeling like that it was the time to move home, be closer to family, especially during the, the roughest spots of the pandemic and feeling quite isolated from loved ones with young kids. So that was a really big driving force to kind of change things up in my life. And then the second thing was, frankly, um, the feeling that I wanted to go back and invest in a different type of role in the mobility industry. And that's working with early stage companies again. Um, The history of the mobility fund in particular is it was started by some of our first investors at at Wonder Mobility. And um, my co-founder and I became actually investors in in their fund, actually, in, in and uh, that went extremely well and had a very unique focus on the value chain of mobility, which we'll get into talking a little bit more about today. And through the experiences of interacting in a passive way as, a, as an investor in the first mobility fund, I got a taste of what it might be like to work with a portfolio of young companies that are tackling big problems. And then I reminded myself like, hey, you know what? I think I'm really excited about working with earlier stage companies in the topic of mobility, but I think it's something that I can be particularly good at, really suits my skills and interests. So um, this was an opportunity to reset, uh, moving back to the US, uh, thinking about how I deploy my time and, and refocusing on what's important for me from a family perspective are really the driving factors. And so as a result of that, I moved out of the day to day as an operator in Wonder and shifted into uh, fully into the venture capital world. And since then, we've uh, launched a second mobility fund with a similar thesis and focus, but are really scaling up that platform as well. So I'm really happy to 
talk with you a little bit more about that today. Yeah, well, I found your framing very, uh, like it's incredibly particular. And I, and I think that's, that's quite interesting. I, I think there's a lot of folks who kind of looked at micromobility and kind of, and we can get into this as well, but like a lot of people have kind of said, oh, like shared, shared was micromobility. And, and so like, this isn't, this is why it's not therefore that interesting anymore. Because if you look at the public companies that are in shared, like they just haven't really performed that well in the stock market. And, and yet I think that there's heaps of opportunities and I, and I feel like I'm seeing them and, and it was great to have you kind of come in and, and, and essentially validate that, but through your own lens. So can you talk through the, the very specific kind of things that you're looking for in the fund and what, and, and, and how you think about that space? Yes. You know, going and sort of trying to present yet another venture capital fund, I, I really think is really difficult in this day and age. Um, there's a lot of different types of capital available for generalist funds. And what we've done um, in the mobility fund specifically is take a totally different tact. We've gone super specialized and very specific. And that is to say that our core focus is on early stage mobility technologies, number one in Europe and number two in the B2B value chain. And what we mean by the value chain in particular is, okay, yes, across the key topics of connectivity, autonomy, sharing, electrification, both for logistics as well as people transportation. But we're we're, we're more interested in who the suppliers are going to be of the future to the end consumer brands. So if you were to say, um, think about, okay, you know, who's the next sort of tier going to be your tier mobility, like the sharing operators is interesting or, but more interesting for us as a, as an investment fund is who are going to be the suppliers of technologies to companies like that, as an example in the future, that will help them be more competitive, more profitable, and really differentiate their business models from any alternatives. So an analogy in the traditional automotive sector would be, okay, uh, some folks are really focusing on investing in you know, who's going to be the next BMW, who's going to be the next Toyota. And we're really more concerned about, you know, what are the Bosches of the future going to be? What are the Continentals going to be? The major kind of actors that are providing fundamental technologies. And arguably, and this is where our investment thesis comes in, uh, maybe are capturing an even more interesting segment of the pie um, of the overall value creation for end consumers, right? I mean, if you look at the automotive value chain as a proxy, uh, something like 80%, 80% percent of, of, of a car that's sold to an end consumer is actually comprised of component suppliers in terms of the, the overall value delivered. And so we see in the mobility sector, a really interesting and equivalent value chain emerging. But the key difference is instead of taking 100 years to develop like the automotive sector did, it's going to take like 10 years just because the pace of innovation is accelerating so much. And that really that's really what our mobility fund aims to do is identify who are those champions of the value chain of the future going to be in mobility. And I, I think the other part that I found interesting is that you're entirely, almost entirely software focused. And so there is a, you know, you're thinking of these vehicles as being like computers on wheels that themselves are like going to have software layers that are overlaid on them. Would that be accurate? I think we wouldn't say to, you know, a portfolio company or potential investment opportunity, or even to any of our partners, we wouldn't say that we're entirely software focused. What I would say is that the lines between software and hardware are blurring. So uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the companies that we invested in really early on is Comodule, which is an Estonian company that's pretty well known within the micromobility space uh, because they produce, um, initially it was just connect, basically uh, connectivity devices for light electric vehicles to get them connected to the internet, make them more shareable and discoverable. And um, that's a hardware component, but it's also a software component because if you have the connectivity device and you put it in the vehicle, but it's really difficult to tap into because there isn't a really accessible software layer, then it's not very valuable. And um, that's a, an example of a company that, in, in our view, has done a really good job of producing world-class 
hardware, but then marrying that with world-class software. And so um, this is going to be kind of increasingly the business models that we see is the, is the marrying of both. And it's, it's kind of at a really abstract level. It makes a lot of sense when you're dealing with transportation because it's moving people around or it's moving goods around. It's inevitably going to connect to some physical good in the real world. And we're not fundamentally opposed to hardware. And we do invest in companies that make hardware as well, as that example proves. It's just that where we invest in the, in the life cycle of a company is quite early. At the same time, though, we're really looking for early signs of traction with customers where we can see proof points. And, you know, companies that, that we evaluate might have several hundred thousand in revenue, a handful of clients, B2B in nature. And we're kind of looking for, okay, what are some of the signs that this is solving a real problem? And we're also looking for them to have done that with relatively limited resources because we want to be able to come in with a sizable investment, but not huge, to be able to bring them to the next level. And in order to be able to do that effectively, you know, you, you can't have raised tens of millions uh, of euros by then to, to get to that point. It needs to be relatively modest investment. And I think there's a natural bias to software because it's generally speaking easier to get a software company stood up from an investment standpoint and get them into a proof point in the market than it is sort of uh, hardware and, and you're getting into sort of categories of vehicles and everything. So um, I think it's, in other words, fair to say that um, we have a, a probably a natural bias to software because of how we approach our investment thesis, but we're not excluding hardware investments by any means. Yeah. The other way to, I guess the other way to frame it is that it, it feels, as you say, like the world is increasingly more software. And I do, and I actually, one of the things that I think we've seen is that software is able to be enabled in more areas in the car than, or like in, in vehicles than it has been any, any time in the past. Right. And that, that there's ways to be able to build really um, compelling and valuable solutions in there. Like, I, I love that it's not the sexy stuff because I think one of the th things that people are oftentimes talking about is like, Oh, you know, this is the new latest thing or the new latest vehicle. And it's going to be sold to this consumer. And it's all about selling the sex appeal. And you're like, I don't care about any of the sex appeal. I really want to just, I want to sell you tires or I want to sell you something. It's like, you know, I want to say, I want to sell the tools that go into these things that uh, will do well. I assume that also as well, because there is a better return profile for these in your view. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's both it's both in terms of the, the market size and upside, but also the fact that in our experience, these types of investment areas are underappreciated by investors, which means that you can come in, you can have less competition in terms of, frankly, identifying and making those in investments. And therefore, um, you can you can invest in great teams with great technologies at attractive prices. Right. And that's ultimately at the end of the day, what we want to be able to do as an investor, right, is we want to be able to invest low and we want to be able to sell uh, high at some point. It's, it's, it sounds really silly to say, but that's a, at a basic level what we're looking to do. And to your point on the less sexy, absolutely. I mean, for example, one of the companies that we invested in recently is has created a, a, an operating system for EV chargers. Right. So the equivalent in the handset market, which I know micro mobility guys like talking about a lot, and it's an excellent analogy for I think what's going on in a lot of mobility is the is the the role of, that Android has played in creating an open sort of platform that that can be developed upon, but really like a solid baseline. These guys, uh, the company's name is Pionix, P-I-O-N-I-X. They have developed an operating system that they license to EV charger manufacturers. So they at least can have a baseline to get started in providing software services to their end clients. And it's all the like undifferentiated stuff in the background that consumers don't really care about and don't need to worry about, but then you can build customized applications on top of it, right? And so this, something like 80% of the handset market or more right now globally is, is running on Android. And it's because there's just so much benefit for 
the manufacturers and so much benefit for the end consumers and having that interoperability and having a baseline system that everyone's building on top of. But it also allows for a lot of creativity in terms of building other applications and customized user interfaces on top of that. And so that's the type of stuff that we really look for in terms of our investment investment thesis. But to your, to your point, it's, it's non- it's not really that interesting because an end consumer is probably never going to know that the charger that they just plugged into in the background somewhere has Bionic software running on it. Yeah, yeah. And that that I get as well. I mean, I, th- I think one of the things that I- I'm very keen to understand from you is I- I've seen your deck, right? So so like I know that you've looked at micromobility and one of these things is, has been, you know, we've got a number of theses at micromobility and, and, and whether or not there's anything in there that, that Horace has talked about in the past around like, hey, these things are effectively like smartphones on wheels and there are these are going to become the computing platforms that they that themselves will become computing platforms. The vehicles themselves will, but also as well that they will serve as like the cutting edge of where a lot of computation ends up just because they have faster development cycles. They've got faster life cycles in terms of shifting over and that sort of thing. Does that hold with the things that you've seen? And is it an area that you are excited about? And, and if so, like, can you talk through any of the example? I mean, code module is a great example. Any, anything else that you've seen that you think is kind of interesting and cool? Yeah, another company, I, and I'll give you some examples of companies uh, that aren't necessarily as a part of our portfolio, so it's not it's super biased, but just one example from our portfolio that I think is really relevant to what you just said is a company called Trails is actually based in, in Israel. And uh, what Trails has done is they have created a software that helps you navigate uh, your light electric vehicle uh, through routes in your city that pertain specifically to the experience of riding smaller, lighter form factor vehicles in terms of safety, in terms of fun, in terms of, of, of health, frankly, right? So if you're, if you're, if you're going to open your Google Maps and it's going to show you what the route a car would take or what the route a bike would, bike would take, it's not necessarily going to consider, okay, um, if I'm riding down this road, does it have cobblestones? Are there trees lining the road and is it providing shade? How much distance is there in terms of between where the, the cars are riding and where um, maybe there's a dedicated lane for light electric vehicles? Or are there, is there not a dedicated lane for light electric vehicles and we're just going through regular traffic? So taking all of these factors into consideration, like how do we make the experience just so much more fulfilling for individuals that are riding electric vehicles by giving them better data in real time about the best routes that they can take around the cities is an example of the type of challenge that we need to solve in order to make light electric vehicles seem less of a hurdle, let's say, for consumers to to adopt. And what we like about this particular technology, too, is it's not another end consumer application that you need to download, but it's a it's an SDK that's in, integrated into another product that you might use. So if you're riding like, you know, the birds of the world or the lions of the world, the software is integrated in the background so that you're provided with excellent routing in the city, but you don't necessarily know that you're interacting with this company's product, right? And that's that's a perfect example of a kind of our, our sweet spot and also the opportunities that are gonna come up um, that are associated with the challenges of, of light electric vehicle adoption. Mm. With the, because I mean, one of the things that I, I think we've all kind of, well, certainly shared, I think was a very, is a very interesting way to deliver computing platforms, right? Like, or, or sorry, to, to be delivering mobility. It, you know, those are rentable shared vehicles that exist on the street. Do you see that there's a bigger shift towards the kind of like we talk a lot about like the shift towards owned that like shared are like an interesting gateway drug to to people understanding a bit more about micromobility, but actually most people want to own their vehicles and the, the next generation of things are, are, are going to be either least subscribed or 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 owned so that you have them kind of with you all the time. If you were thinking about that space, like what do you think is interesting in that space? 
Yeah, hundred percent. So this idea that if you, so the, the, the really big opportunity with light electric vehicles is the fact that the form factor is so much smaller, smaller in theory, from a range perspective, it's more than enough to get to work every day, so much more convenient to park uses way less energy, in theory, cheaper to buy and cheaper to operate. I mean, there's so many things speaking in favor about why for many, many people using it for daily trips in a city that are repeatable, makes total sense, right? And that also lends itself naturally to thinking about, well, maybe I don't just kind of rent this every day and figure out, okay, where's the vehicle that I'm going to, you know, I have to find a vehicle essentially every day to get to work. But what if I owned it or maybe some alternative form of ownership that gives me consistent access? And I think within that context, one of the themes that we're most excited about is what does that future industry look like that supports alternative ownership models for light electric vehicles? And I'm not just talking about end consumer ownership. I'm talking about what about the brands themselves that are operating new types of light electric vehicles, either designing them and you know, shipping them and maintaining them, but also the manufacturers and, and really key, the, who is financing that, right? And so what I specifically mean by that is we see a, a potential disaggregation in the market um, between the manufacturers of light electric vehicles, the owners of light electric vehicles, which might, might be large financial institutions or medium-sized financial institutions, the brands that operate them that might actually own the IP of, you know, similar to Apple, right? I mean, Apple's licensing effective, or I don't know if the technical term is licensing, but they're, they're contracting with manufacturers, uh, the Foxcons of the world that are producing iPhones, but the IP is owned mm. by Apple. And then Apple is responsible for the marketing channels, getting it to the consumer and doing the after sales service. There will be similar brands with light electric vehicles emerging or already are emerged that will not do any of the manufacturing, but they will just simply own the brand. But they might even not even own the vehicles that they're leasing, renting, or other or subscribing consumers to. And then, of course, the end consumers may not just be buying them outright, but they might be tapping into a long-term rental or a lease or a subscription or whatever you want to call it. So you've got right there, you've got like five different actors in a value chain of how you get light electric vehicles into the market and maintain them on an ongoing basis and provide an excellent customer service experience. And we're really interested in what types of challenges emerge from a value chain perspective when you have that level of complexity. That level of complexity provides a certain advantage for each one of those stakeholders. But like, how do you manage all of that complexity as you go through each one of those steps? What types of fleet management solutions are required? What types of financing solutions? What types of communication protocols are needed so that the financing partner knows, okay, like, wait, what type of consumer has access to my asset now? And what are they doing with it? And did they get in an accident? And what does that mean in terms of the value of my asset now? You know, all of these things are non-obvious. And frankly, end consumers don't care about and shouldn't really care about if they're just like paying, you know, $100 a month or whatever it is to access a particular product, which is uh, more efficient and, and more fun transportation. But we're really, really zooming in on those particular challenges right now and trying to understand where the investment opportunities are. And it seems like there are, are quite a few. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you're certainly correct about the financing. I think that's that's one that a lot of folks that I've became very clear at the Micromobility America conference that there are a number of companies that are sort of circulating around saying like, hey, you want to sell these vehicles and put them on subscription or put them onto something like we will absolutely finance that for you, which means that you then have effectively a way to finance your production pretty far upfront without you necessarily needing to freak out about like, go and raise, you know, significant as a working capital and even necessarily pre-sell everything as a sale. You can you can effectively get a commitment for them to be subscribed to or uh, rented or something like that. And then, you know, if you do that, then it's, it's like 
then you can see contract manufacturers really going like, oh, you've managed to substantially de-risk a production run. Like that's, it, it, it just, it gets the, the flywheel of like innovation in the space, especially for what will happen with new vehicles, I think just becomes a lot easier to do, which is one of the big challenges that I think we've seen with a lot of hardware companies or companies, I'm thinking of companies like uh, Tor or Bow or Ica, who's actually the Christian from from Comodule. Like they've been trying to build uh, new hardware scooters, and 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 it's like there's this funding gap that exists between like, hey, yeah, you can develop this amazing concept, and you can actually generate quite a lot of interest and demand, and yet nobody is, you know, it's challenging to be able to fund that next step. And if you can de-risk along that way, I think that gets super interesting, especially if on the other side you've got an asset that's got a whole bunch of IoT in it and it really de-risks it for the folks who are funding it initially, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first generation kind of of micromobility sharing operators that really brought this idea to, let's say, the masses, you know, the birds, the lambs, the tears of the world. One of the, I would say, criticisms for, you know, for better or for worse, you know, whether it's really uh, warranted or not, is just very large sums of money raised, questionable profitability, what's the really pathway. But the thing is, is, you know, effectively raising a lot of equity and buying large fleets of vehicles, right? I mean, what type of other more traditional business that's in the, you know, and maybe, maybe they wouldn't appreciate this word, but it's, you know, effectively a, a rental business they're operating. I mean, what other large rental businesses are going out into the private markets and raising large, raising large sums of equity and then basically buying assets that over time ideally are kind of predictable in nature. <laughs> you know, you understand what the failure rates are. You understand like how much you can return on that asset. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of like a perfect setup for more classic forms of fleet financing, right? And so as I'm really keen to see as these next generations kind of emerge and you think about it as a fleet, right? And, and maybe the brands that the consumers perceive as just, you know, vehicle brands maybe at the end of the day if they're doing subscription or other types of alternative models maybe they do become more like fleet managers because they have you know thousands and thousands of customers that are paying like a service fee on a monthly basis and then they're responsible for providing the ongoing maintenance and, and providing that sort of uptime so to speak so it really becomes a fleet management business you know, may they're probably going to have other ways of financing that business than raising large sums of equity and, and buying buying the vehicles and think that there's a massive investment opportunity there. And we've seen some funds emerge uh, that specialize just in those types of new non-dilutive equity kind of investments, the mobility capitals of the world and, and, and others uh, during planets, another example of a, of a group that's come up on the radar recently. And I think there will be many more to come because someone from the industry reminded me recently that in terms of the transportation industry, the asset financing of the transportation industry is like over 80% non-equity, meaning like debt financing for financing assets. So that's just the way that you finance physical goods in the, in the world that transports people around. It's the way it's been done for years and years and years. And there's no reason to believe that in mobility, there isn't going to be a massive new forms of mobility. There's not going to be a massive market emerges of kind of like, you know, non-ownership in that sense. There's leasing and financing in that sort of, in sort of ways. And that's going to be exciting to see how that impacts micromobility over the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, Horace came out and uh, tried to do the total addressable market uh, calculations and did a presentation in Micromobility uh, America, which I'll link to in the show notes as well, because I think it's a, it's a really good one. But effectively, he's like, look, this thing could be, you know, $500 billion by the end of a, a year, and, and we could be selling, you know, hundreds of millions of vehicles a year by the end of 2030. And, and in actual fact, I think he's even undercooking that in terms of like, he's like, this is very realistic in terms of what we could do. I think there are other other forces that will push uh, for smaller vehicles like this to emerge just just on the basis of like, you know, we're, we're doing the uh, interview in October 2022. Like 
we're about to head into a horrible winter in Europe for energy supply. And I just, I, I think there's going to be a lot of push for governments to say like, you know, we need to transport people around as, as efficiently as possible. And if you have vehicles that are one one hundredth the emissions and one one hundredth the energy requirements, I think we'll see bigger pushes for that. Like where, where else uh, in micromobility, like in the things that you've seen so far, have you found things that are interesting? Like what are the opportunities, the other opportunities that you've seen in addition to the, the ones that we've talked about? Yeah. So, it, so at a fundamental level, it, it comes down to, you know, you have a limited amount of supply right now in the kind of global market for electrification of vehicles in terms of batteries and, and a massive demand, which is creating, you know, price surges and shortages are all around. And any opportunities where you can just at a very basic level provide a similar service to an end consumer, um, but using less materials <laughs> or, or energy, frankly, is a really interesting opportunity. I mean, we saw at Micromobility, some interesting technologies where you can get like dramatically longer lifespan out of batteries that go into micromobility vehicles, like 10x what you would. So normally you have a, like a natural degradation curve. And after some years, you need to replace your battery. But they're coming in and saying, look, we figured out how to make a battery that's, yes, it might be twice as expensive, but it lasts like 10 times longer then in theory, like that has a direct impact on the amount of batteries that you need to produce because it's just not, they're not dying as quickly, right? That's just kind of one example. And then in the sharing context, there's another company there that's doing optimization for sharing fleets and basically saying, look, we have a limited amount of scooters. You know what would be better than buying more, making sure that if only 10% of the time they're being used, what if like 90% of the time they were being used, right? So we're using the resources that you have more efficiently. Is this Zoba? Um, Zoba is an example. And there's another one, Lantern as well from from Europe that's from the UK. Both of them are focusing on it similar. So like, and this is like, again, bring it back to what our sweet spot is. Like you could find a way to, there's a certain, there, you know, there's a case we made, okay, there's some folks need to figure out just getting these types of new vehicles out into the market for folks but then also how do we use what's out there more efficiently so that we don't need to produce as much both from like a product perspective but also energy perspective is also really relevant and and that those are some of the hot topic areas that we're looking at from an investment standpoint i hear you um one of the other areas that like I, i've seen a company come through recently called kogo who are who are building i don't know if you've come across them but they've, they've built like an app that aggregates all of the different scooter operators in europe and it's and it's like 250 different operators and they're all in one app and at the moment they're like they're, they're limited to being able to only surface where the scooters are. So for folks, it's like a discovery. It's like, you know, their X kayak and booking.com, that sort of thing. And their, their focus is on just the discovery part in the same way that they're like, you know, you would look for a flight and then you would end up pushing you off to your website to, to go do it. I can see something like that. Like, obviously you come from the abilities of service world. Like I am very curious as to whether or not you think there are startups that are going to be able to materially contribute in the mobility as a service space for micromobility. And if so, are there any interesting ones that you've seen? Yeah, 100%. I mean, the business model that we see already in the rental car business is you could go directly on the Hertz website and you could reserve a car or you could go to kayak or booking.com. And depending on where you are in the world, it's going to be a slightly different flavor in terms of a brand. But And they'll provide an equally compelling experience and then get you connected with effectively an asset owner on the back end and then make a reservation on your behalf and then provide a seamless you know, payment experience like this is there's an, in my view there's no reason to believe why that wouldn't be possible in this new transportation segment and even more so because the majority if not all the devices are connected to the internet that's one of the biggest challenges of the rental industry is they're kind of trying to figure out how they connect assets on scale vehicles cars on scale to 
be able to offer more streamlined rentals so that you, you know, you don't have to roll up to like a physical kind of office and have key handovers and all, but like you could find a car on booking.com, reserve it, and then you pull up to a you know, parking lot effectively and then use your mobile phone and unlock it and use it. You never have to talk to anyone. That's sort of like the ideal rental car experience. And in my view, I might be a little bit biased because of my background in yeah. shared mobility. But I mean, if you think about it, if you've ever used a service like that, it's just like, you don't need to explain it after you've done it the first time because you're like, why would I ever go wait in a rental car line again? This is like, it's just like so much better. And oh, a thousand percent. No, 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 completely. Yeah. So you get the vehicle you need when you need it sort of thing. Yeah. And that's, and so that's the way the, the world works. There's direct channels, you know, into the sixths and the hertzes and Europe cars and whatever, and you can book on their site and then get access to their cars. But then they also have other channels that they sell through as well, where you could again do through like a travel site. And I don't know why there wouldn't be travel sites, quote unquote, for micro mobility vehicles and for you know free floating car sharing and all of these. Where and it could be the existing travel sites themselves as well. But having basically like they're the fleet owners right that are the financiers of the which may be distinct of the fleet operators that are making sure the vehicles have are up and running and clean and on the streets and, and safe. And then there's going to be the portals where you get access to them. And sometimes they're the operators themselves. And sometimes they're going to be selling through alternative channels. And it's not mutually exclusive, right? They, they probably will do both, just like an existing travel market. It's just a matter of mm. time and, and giving a little bit of yeah, exactly. time to mature because there's, there's not enough. Right now, there's not enough like access to fleet available on supply where you could just tap into as a a travel site and be like, okay, I'm going to connect to this provider and they're going to give me hundreds and thousands of assets across the world that I can offer my consumers. It's just that simply the fleets are not connected right now and they're too small to be able to offer that type of experience to the travel portals. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I've always, I've always laughed at like, we're in this, we're in this uh, period where, you know, we can literally, we can do it. And yet companies like it, it was certainly in the early days with Bird and Lime and them as they expanded they just didn't want it they didn't want to be surfaced they, they were thinking that they were going to own the entire thing themselves and it was uh and it was like there's just no way this market is going to work especially in the shared space that any one company is ever going to own all of the markets it makes sense that you can see it right which is as you say it's the maturity of the market as it's as it's developing and people realize it's like well this is a pretty standard business we'll be able to run it we'll make profit but we do want to be able to surface as much demand as possible we'll do that in the best way that we can yeah, I mean, I look, I, I, yeah. I, I can see that there's different phases of a business and you have different focuses and, and you don't want to go in a ton of different channels to offer your products. And I just think that every kind of stereotypical example of this is an example of a very controlling company that, you know, has everything locked down in their user experience and doesn't allow anyone else to touch it. They all have examples of selling their products and services through other channels, too. I mean, the, the one in transportation. Uh, is Tesla and Tesla signed a big deal with Hertz and you're going to be able to go, if not already, you're going to be able to go and rent a Tesla through Hertz. Like that's an indirect experience of accessing a Tesla you know, product and service, but they're doing it and they're probably going to do more of that, I would imagine as well. So that's not exclusive. Like, you know, you have to buy a Tesla through their website. That's the only way that you'll be able to use it. And um, the other example that's really, really classic in the handset world is, is Apple. And you can buy it, go to a retailer that's not an Apple retailer and buy an Apple product today online and offline everywhere. Mm. And so I just feel that, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of unrealistic. And it's funny, like going back to the early days of wonder and, and as startup founder, like we heard in 2014, like Uber, uh, actually, yeah, you've got with your background too, you'll appreciate this. Basically every, all the investors that we were trying to raise money from were saying, Uber is going to own every vertical of transportation. They're going to do absolutely everything in transportation. Like you guys don't have a chance. And in hindsight, like we didn't do a very good job <laughs> explaining to the investors why, 
you know, they were wrong about that. But in hindsight, it sounds kind of ridiculous, right? With the, you know, with the diversity of different types of service providers we have now, different brands and different vehicle providers, the fact that you have one, you know, company that could be so dominant and control every channel of how we get around just simply doesn't seem very realistic in the world we live in today. And I think it's only going to become increasingly unrealistic (laughs) that you're going to be able to have one company that's controlling everything in that way, right? Everyone's going to have their like special area that they focus on. And that goes back to what I said about value chain. This all goes back to the value chain thesis that we have, which is going to be a complicated value chain. There's going to be big actors and smaller actors, but eventually like what's under the surface of the iceberg, 80% of the stuff is not going to touch the consumer. That is going to, is going to be driving value in the end. And it's going to be really interesting technologies. I love this. The uh, Horace has this great thing, and it kind of goes back to what you're talking about with trails, but he's like micro will enable new, new emergent uh, behaviors to come to the fore where, what can you do with a vehicle that's small and lightweight and, you know, doesn't necessarily conform to the existing frameworks because of its geometry or because of its capabilities? And that one thing that we've seen emerge as like new behavior is that folks get together and do uh, scooter rides, that like a whole bunch of people will get together and do a scooter ride together and they can experience something together in, in a group. And I think to work out how to like surface all that innovation, there's just no way that one company was ever going to own that. I mean, I'm just sorry, just to come back to your point around it. I think, I think that's very true. When I was at Uber, I think that we were just like, I was immensely frustrated by the bureaucracy. By the time I left, it was like, there was, there was, there was no innovation happening. We were like, we were running a, a very large taxi company and doing all the things that are required to be able to make that happen. I, I do wonder a little bit about the governments that, that like how you think about like venture startups and dealing with governments, because I feel to me like mobility is generally speaking a very regulated space. Like what do you, when you're looking at investments, how do you think about the regulatory piece? You, do you shy away from stuff that would end up in a more regulated markets? So generally speaking, we we're not looking at stuff that's too heavily regulated because that tends to be, and this is a big generalization, but generally speaking, the the types of products and services that touch end consumers are much more directly affected by that. So if you're going to launch a ride hailing service, the country that, that is has taxi regulation, then you're going to be affected by regulation, right? Yeah. Um, if we're, a, let's say, investing in an optimization tool that tells the taxi supplier or software supplier or taxi ride hailing operator where to place their vehicles in a city to be able to maximize the the utilization rates of those assets it's it's tends to be less or not regulated at all because there's a sub like a sub tool and that's an area that we feel comfortable in and and frankly it's one of the advantages that we talk about with our investment partners is to say look like you know if you if you believe in the macro trend of transportation disruption and you don't want to bet on one particular operator because you don't know what the regulatory implications are going to be or the competitive forces then what if you invest in a, in a core technology that could say to hypothetically supply to dozens and dozens of ride hailing operators globally? And if one of them happens to go you know, face headwinds, go out of business, whatever, for regulatory reasons or competitive reasons, it's not the end of the world because you effectively have invested in a B2B portfolio. It's like a really efficient way of investing in sort of global trends without being exposed to one particular company. So this is something that we've seen in practice and we really strongly believe in why we're excited about our particular investment thesis. I think on the other hand, though, too, that, um, and this is something that came up at the, at Micromobility recently at the US event in that, you know, we tend to, in my, in my background, more as an operator, we tend to talk about regulations as a sort of a stick, you know, it's like, oh, like, the regulators are coming in and saying where you can and can't ride micromobility scooters, and you need to have these kind of safety features, you need to have this. And, th- and that's all very, very important aspects of what, you know, governments and provide. On the other hand, 
we don't talk as much about incentivization and, and sort of positive reinforcement of types of behaviors that we want to see. And um, one of the great examples of that recently is in the U.S., they're starting to incentivize more and more the purchase of EVs. Mm. Unfortunately, it's really heavily biased towards EV cars, but basically... Yeah, the four-wheel kind, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But like saying that's a, that's the opposite of a stick. It's like saying like you can't, you know, one is to say you can't drive, you know, ice, a turtle combustion engine vehicles anymore. The other is to say, well, we're going to incentivize you to basically adopt this new type of platform powered by electricity. And what wouldn't it be really interesting? And this goes back to the micromobility, but wouldn't it be really interesting if we applied effectively subsidies to the light electric vehicle market and said, you know what, like that, 7500 US dollar subsidy that we were going to give you to buy a $50,000 car what if we just provide you with that subsidy to basically buy a light electric vehicle outright and by the way that's not crazy because as you know like there's a lot of really great two wheel vehicles that you can get for certainly far less than 7500 US dollars and maybe even some four wheel ones some of the the new players that are emerging so I mean, this is a purely a thought experiment, but if you just came out and said, we're just going to give people free or almost free light electric vehicles to get to work every day, maybe it doesn't completely replace. Maybe they have like a four wheel car to make them feel a little bit more comfortable, but then they replace that second car that they would have with, you know, a, a very lightweight four wheeler that's electric powered, that's just two seats and gets them to the office every day just fine, or maybe an e-bike or something. I mean, literally like you could like give away vehicles to people to incentivize them to adopt behaviors that are less resource intense in terms of manufacturing, less energy intense in terms of ongoing use, and frankly, just like more like cost effective for the for end users to use on a daily basis as well. So I guess like from I'm really excited about and, and would love to see more examples in the market of positive reinforcement of behaviors that will really help us get through this very difficult transition right now to renewable energy sources and fairly more efficient use of resources overall. And, and that, that's a big area that I would personally like to get more involved in as well. Yeah, well, I know, I know uh, that was some of the feedback that you had, kind of coming out of Micromobility America that you and I discussed, and and, and was certainly uh, voiced on stage as well. Which uh, some folks uh, we put out the panel that you did with Julia uh, already, which is which was well received. So I found it fascinating that you were like, "Hey, I'm in mobility space." I wasn't kind of like fully aware of the significance and impact of micromobility until I came to the conference. So like, what can we do better to tell the story? Because I think that to me was like a, a light bulb moment. Like, oh, wow, we are clearly not doing as good a job. We're doing an okay job, but we're doing like, we've got a better, we've got, we've got work to do. So what would that look like? Yeah, you know, I think that, and it's so funny because I've been steeped in the very minute details of the industry now for the better part of a decade. And I had the opportunity at, the the conference recently really kind of like go high level again and see like almost through like a beginner's eyes like interacting with folks off stage and on stage and kind of seeing what are their questions and realizing that okay what's the high level story like what are the key things that really matter and what are the challenges that exist and i was reminded again and almost like saw it from a fresh perspective and i was like wait a second like we are super stoked about or i'll speak for myself i am super stoked about in general you know electric cars being a new thing that people are really embracing and really taking seriously now compared to 10 years ago, right? However, this implicit bias that we have to saying, well, let's take what we've essentially had historically and let's just make it electric is like, why are we doing that, right? Like, why would we say, like, why does it, why would we necessarily just automatically say, well, we're going to take exactly the same types of cars we have and we're going to put an electric motor in them and then they're going to just be significantly better for the planet. Like, if you think about that, 
on a you know a daily usage basis in terms of how we actually use these vehicles and get around. And at the same time, we're talking about well, we can't produce enough batteries to keep up with things. But every and everyone wants like three, four hundred mile ranges for their car or you know whatever four or five hundred kilometer range. But at the same time. Like they don't actually use that, right? I mean, I wouldn't even, I don't use that. I mean, I'm thinking to myself like, oh, like I, if you know, electric car, I need a, at least this much, but I don't, I barely drive on a day-to-day basis, right? I'm really, I'm doing a lot of digital meetings and doing a lot of working from home office and everything. And I'm like, even myself, I'm so steep in the industry. Like I'm just taking for granted that the right approach is basically just to transform the existing infrastructure that we have and just make it and make it electric, but not thinking about the form factors of the vehicles. I'm not, I'm not thinking about, you know, the operational considerations for how they could be used in a different way or the different financial. I mean, just now really getting deeper into the financial considerations. How could we finance those vehicles in a different way? Or how could we make it easier for consumers to, to really get access to them versus say a car? And yeah, I, I just think that I, you know, I'm just being like brutally honest that I, I was reminded again that like, we cannot take what's there kind of for granted and simply translate that in with a different energy source and then call it a day. Like there's going to be a lot of other behavioral changes that are going to be uh, needed in order to deal with some of the challenges that we're faced with right now. I'm sitting in California and we got, you know, California, they, they say, oh, you know, it's the fifth largest economy in the world. If it was an independent country and all this innovation, blah, blah. Okay. We got a alert on our cell phones, our mobile phones uh, last month. Yeah. I was there when that happened. Yeah. And it's like, there's too much, we're using too much energy, yeah. like stop using your air conditioning and turn your car charging off and everything. It's like, that's the level that we're at. Like we don't have enough energy to power what's there, let alone the surge of demand that's coming. And so it's going to require these types of changes in how we consume that I don't think is fundamentally going to affect our quality of life. And quite the contrary, maybe it'll actually make the quality of life better. And it's going to require changes that go beyond just transitioning the cars to being EVs for sure, 100%. And I was reminded of that fully in the event recently. Yeah, I, I think the story that we've tried to tell has been that like small trips are, you know, most trips are short trips, use small vehicles on short trips, yeah. and actually like build a world where you can do that. And I think the the messaging we have tried to do is get quite simple about it. And but you know, this is, this is always a good reminder to just kind of keep banging on the same drum and heart. I think Horace will be Horace is uh, Horace makes a joke that when he uh, that Clay Christensen sort of did the one presentation, he did the one on disruptive innovation. And, and he did that one presentation for 20 years, like he did the same presentation, he tweaked it a little bit here and there and all that sort of stuff. But he get, gave that same presentation thousands of times as it turns out and it really is you just need someone who's out there kind of banging the drum and horace is a phenomenal kind of um, uh, messenger for that but but even then it's i just found it fascinating that there are folks like yourself who as you say you're steeped in the industry and just like yeah why why do we have to do the electrification of of, of cars like that wh- why is that the only form factor that will win like i think the part that that is really interesting is that e-bike sales in particular, like I, I, I can use the example from New Zealand and we can use it from Europe as well, but like e-bikes will outsell electric cars six to one, you know, like in New Zealand, they, they, they're, they're, they're like, we're, they're growing fat, they're growing at 50% a year. They, they're, they're on track, e-bikes and e-scooters are on track to outsell all new cars, not just like electric cars, but like all new cars uh, next year. And it's just been one of these things that like, if you look at where the demand is, that's where the demand is. People are speaking with their wallets. It's just not being tracked. And that's the, that, that I think is kind of uh, an, an interesting kind of aside. Yeah. And where I spend a lot of my time in it, well, I spend a lot of my, most of my time talking to early stage, uh, early stage technology companies that are, that are creating these innovations. But another 
part of my focus is on connecting them with investors and strategic partners that can help accelerate their growth. And a big, let's say, global pool of partners that we've tapped into, I think, effectively at the Mobility Fund are folks from the from the automotive and the energy industry that are household names in their respective areas of the world that have created significant you know, distribution for automotive companies that are manufacturing or they've been producing electricity at scale or distributing energy at scale. Um, they're investment partners in our fund, right? That's kind of the key besides you know, entrepreneurs and executives from the transportation industry. It's, it's, it's these large institutions that have been run very successful businesses on the way the transportation industry has been running for the past century. And you know what? They are keenly aware and actively investing in the new business models of the future that sometimes are not seemingly directly related to the, the business of the past. So we've got you know, large dealership groups, large, large motor groups that have primarily focused on cars that are now coming and saying, I'm really interested in electric vehicles and not just the four-wheel type, but also the two-wheel type. And I'm interested in last mile delivery. And I'm trying to figure out you know, how I can play a part in that value chain. And you know what? Going back to the Hertz example that I mentioned about Tesla, we happen to believe that these types of successful businesses in the in the traditional transportation automotive industry are going to be key players in the future as well because of the types of experiences and assets they bring to the table. They have a large strategic footprint uh, with massive retail locations. They're really savvy when it comes to financing assets and tracking their depreciation. They're really great at aftermarket service and sales and having existing client base and really understanding how to operate that business and what complements that of these new technology innovations. And so where we sort of sit is at a bridge between that capital and that experience that is really available with all of that context and then the new technologies that are emerging and connecting the two together. And I know for a fact, because we're in these conversations every day, that there is a keen interest and an, and an active participation in starting to invest in those new types of business models. And that's something that's very, uh, makes me very, very optimistic, right? Because if it was the, the company, you know, the, the same companies in the automotive and energy sector saying, well, we're just gonna do more of the same, then I'd, I would worry a little bit because then it's going to come down to the scrappy, you know, the scrappy startups to basically rebuild everything from scratch, which frankly, in my view, is not that realistic. Yes. It doesn't really make sense. But like hypothetically, like yeah. why couldn't you, why couldn't an automotive dealership group be a distribution point for a, a small lightweight car that happens to, instead of costing, you know, 40,000 is costing 10,000, right? Why not? Like what's the, what's the difference, you know? <laughs> well, I, I, okay, so, so I have a thing about why that's the case. And this is, it comes back to like why we don't have heavy, heavy vehicles. And it goes back to like Gordon Murray and the development of iStream. But like it comes back to there just isn't as much margin in $10,000 sales price as there is in a $40,000 one. So like car dealerships are themselves not set up to be able to do like large volume, but small. I do think it would be the case that like if you're a motorbike dealer, then like, of course, you're probably going to be excited about a $10,000 micro car. And so we'll see that like the folks who are at the bottom, the bottom end of the chain, are they going to be the ones that sell, but not the like, hey, we're here doing Porsche and, you know, we can be, we can earn $50,000 in every sale versus, you know, we have to move 50 of these things to be able to kind of clear the same amount of, you know, claim amount of money. Yeah, for sure. So if you're just focusing on the classic transaction, we're just selling this vehicle. And, and you're not providing financing, you're not providing insurance, you're not providing, you know, an, uh, like a pack, a package for guaranteeing the maintenance on it. And, and what about a battery and what happens when the battery degrades? What, you know, is it, is it something that I have to come back and I have to pay to replace it? Or am I buying a battery on a subscription or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these other data, you know, if I, if I want to get connected, if I want data, my data package, et cetera, there's all these other ways 
that are starting to emerge for making money in transportation um, as a service that is beyond just the uh, transaction of the vehicle itself. And I think like in, with viewed as a whole, like if you look at the, the total wallet spend for consumers of transportation is not going to be less. <laughs> I mean, if anything, you could argue if the experience is better, like to the excellent example of the handset market, we're spending more today on like, you know, it's a whole new category that's emerged of, of new services that we're spending that we never spent money on before. And I fully believe that that's going to be the case with transportation as well. There's all these new services that are going to emerge that related to transportation that's going to make our experience better and more fun and exciting and healthful that we never spent on before. And it, you could imagine that you'd spend even more money in the future as an overall spend. But the question is, like, how are those institutions going to capture part of that value, right? Maybe not all of it. And certainly some of them are maybe not going to, but others are are actively investing in trying to figure out how they're going to basically provide that total package service. And I, and I do think that there are going to be some more traditional transportation businesses that are going to be big players in, in that regard in the future. Yeah, and I, I agree. And not exclusively, but definitely there are going to be some that are going to figure that out. Yeah, I agree. And I, I also love the, your point as well, which is like, if you just leave it to the startups, it's like the entire thing is not going to, well, it's, it's very scrappy. Like what you need, where you get to in this space is you get very, very, uh, the mature business is just like enabling and supercharging all of that growth. And I, and I think of the example specifically of like Unagi getting like, bought into uh best buy so unagi makes scooters yes they got bought into best buy best buy just was like we're very excited about micro mobility people tune people love scooters and they want to buy lots of them and so they've now actually got and they're they're building a micro mobility first division at best buy which is you walk into the shop and you can go to micro mobility and it will sell you scooters but it'll also sell you a whole range of other vehicles as well sometimes like a one wheel and and things like that and i can just go like you know totally weird that Best Buy is now going to be selling vehicles. I can imagine that that would feel challenging if, if you were selling things in other areas. Like if you, if you were, for example, selling motorbikes or previous other things, and then all of a sudden people are shifting off motorbikes and going to going to scooters, it's like they'd access them in completely different ways. It's just, it could feel threatening. So, I, I mean, I think it's very exciting to see that you've managed to work out how to tap those players who, who might look at that and say, I feel threatened, but I also feel like I'm excited about the opportunities that might emerge from this. Absolutely. And I think it's a it's a reshuffling of how we think about who's providing those services, right? I think Breath Best Guy is an incredible example because, you know, viewed in one way, light electric vehicles are kind of like, like large electronics devices, a little bit more expensive than a than a laptop or a mobile phone, but but providing, you know, connectivity, um, real you know, providing a, a whole bunch of digital services as well in terms of how they're built and and certainly testing one out in person and getting the opportunity to compare different types of brands is probably an important part of the experience for a lot of consumers and Best Buy with their footprint and the customer service representatives they have and the training capabilities and whatnot, in theory, could provide a place where you could try out lots of different brands and get familiarized with what using, uh, like, let's say, an e-bike or an e-scooter would be like to getting around the city every day. So that's that's a great example. And I think that there are other segments that are kind of encroaching on uh, transportation as well that are going to be really interesting to watch. And I don't think that's an either or situation. You know, we see within our own investor group, large energy companies that are producing electricity or, uh, you know, just dis- distributing um, uh, petroleum or gas in, to for existing vehicles. And they're thinking about, well, my core business is going to be impacted immensely by changing cons- consumer behaviors with respect to electrification. How can I participate that in that more fully Yes, providing energy, but also beyond that, right? So we see the emerging examples of large energy companies in the U.S. like AES providing platform for doing electric car subscriptions. And so they're basically providing kind of transportation as a service kind of indirectly then because they're providing the vehicle. 
I mean, then you get the energy companies participating in providing mobility. What does AES do traditionally? I don't know what AES. Oh, they produce electricity. And so they're thinking, you know, oh, well, how do we participate more in the value chain of, or not even just that, but how do we promote the use of electric vehicles more quickly? Because it also affects us in a positive way, because then we produce more electricity, which is needed for, you know, it's like a mutually, you know, it's reinforcing the consumer behavior that's effectively helping them sell more energy. Right. So I think that then it's like, okay, well, energy companies are getting into providing transportation services and then electronics retailers are getting into providing (laughs) transportation your tools and services effectively and and then probably large motor groups and and uh, electronics companies themselves like the apples of the world and etc and so it's it's going to be a really really interesting next 10 years and and i think that it's possible that examples in each one of those industries can coexist and they provide like overlapping services but they're going to be approaching it from a different angle right And, and and it probably spells great news for consumers as long as we can keep as long as we can find ways to meet our energy demands and also production demands and do it in a sustainable way because if we can if we can figure out those key challenges then we're going to have a lot of options available that we didn't have before right and just and and that variety is really i think great for consumers the choice that that they will have is really good totally just to finish off do you have any uh excitement like around manufacturing stuff like do you do you look at manufacturing technologies and see anything that you think is super interesting in that space you know, it's an area that we're not, um, we do, so we have partners that are invested in our in our investment fund and, and our, we're investing together with them in new technologies that are coming from the manufacturing segment of transportation. And it's an area that we find that we have a lot of synergy with because they're trying to figure out, well, what are the kind of the key technologies going to be of the future that my clients today, if I'm selling into the traditional automotive value chain, are going to really need? And how do I kind of pivot into that? And what we do is we're, I think we're really good at connecting the dots there to emerging technologies that can be really exciting and, and a potential risk to some of those traditional businesses. Uh, where we stop short, though, is we're not experts in manufacturing technology, like what's going on in the factory floor itself. Um, the closest mm. that we come to touching that, and, and we are pretty selective about it. If we're really not comfortable in a particular area, we're not going to, uh, at the end of the day, we're running a you know an investment fund that needs to produce strong financial returns. And if we're not comfortable with that particular area, then we're, we're not going to invest in it. Um, we'll, we'll stop short of investing in manufacturing technologies, but where we do touch is in logistics as it relates to warehousing and last mile delivery, which is often tightly tied to uh, manufacturing processes and, um, and in terms of timing and, and inventories. And we're very active in the logistics investment space. And the technology that we invested in mm. um, last year is um, is imagining a new, more uh, efficient way that small and medium-sized businesses can get access to really low cost, but highly easy to use, but powerful warehouse management software. So if you think about it, it's kind of like the navigation inside the warehouse. Like how do you efficiently navigate if you're inside of it to be yep. more efficient in how you pick pick the things that need to be shipped and get them out the door. And then we also, and, and, and that company is called Pulpo. And then we invest in another company called SmartLane, which is the navigation outside the warehouse. So when it's leaving a particular storage area or production facility, how do you actually navigate the deliveries in a way that maximizes the utilization of a particular delivery vehicle, right? So another good example of this is, let's say hypothetically, you know, you were to completely convert your delivery fleet to EV, but you were doing a horrible job maximizing the, the time of the drivers who are driving those vehicles and the capacity that you actually have in the vehicles to make sure that they're always running and that that's all, they're always fully stocked to the maximum capability to be able to deliver the most efficient route to, 
you're, you're basically you're you're missing out on an opportunity to benefit from the efficiencies of having an electric fleet if you don't have your operations being efficient, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the flip the flip side of that coin, and that's an area that we are very very interested in, and that we feel much more comfortable in than manufacturing technologies themselves as it relates to transportation. Phenomenal. Hey Sam, we were at time. So look, this has been super interesting. I I, I just you know you're such a, a cogent thinker in this space, and I think it, it's it's super interesting. Thank you for, for taking the time to come join us and, and, and also just generally thank you very much for, for the support and the in the space. For those who, who don't know, Sam came to the Micromobility Conference and when we put him in the Investor Cafe, so it was just like anybody anybody who wanted to come along and meet an investors, Sam sat there for eight or nine hours on the first day and then <laughs> for like another five, five hours the next day, he'd like, he was a, a mensch, as they say in the space, just, just like really, really being of service to the uh, entrepreneurs in the space. So I just want to take my hat off to you and say thank you very much for, for the work that you're doing here. Well, th- thank you for the incredible job you and, and the team are doing in terms of building a community and focus around this unique opportunity. And I would just encourage anyone, if you're a startup founder and you'd like to get in touch with us because you have a funding round and, and would like to discuss potential investment opportunities or just generally get advice, feel free to contact us. You can find our information on our website, mobility.fund. Um, and if you're interested in being a partner um, and co-investing with us in this space, feel free to reach out at any time and we can discuss how we can work together. Awesome. All right. Hey, really appreciate it, Sam. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks so much.